When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. You're listening to The Sunday Debate on Intelligence Squared. This week, we're looking at the relationship between the West and China. And this was the third debate we've staged in person since the COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted here in the UK. And if you do enjoy it and want to join some of our upcoming debates, ask your questions, vote on the motion and much more. You can do so in person or via the live stream on our subscription service Intelligence Squared Plus with details on intelligencesquared.com. But now let's go to this week's debate with host Manveen Rana. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, good evening and welcome to Intelligence Squared. Tonight's debate, is it time to treat China as an adversary or a partner? We're very lucky tonight to have four brilliant speakers to help us decide. But before we do, we just wanted to get a sense of where audience opinion lies. Could you vote now and tell us whether you're for or against the motion? If you're not sure at this stage... And hopefully we might swing your opinion one way or the other by the end of the night. But if you're not sure, please vote undecided. Um, we'll announce the, the pre-vote results after we've heard the speeches. Now, tonight's debate really couldn't be more timely. We began the week with the leaders of the world descending on Glasgow for what was the, is the, currently the most important world gathering on climate change. President Xi, the leader of China, failed to turn up. The American president, Joe Biden, called it a big mistake and criticized China as a, a, a nation that wants to show leadership on big issues but somehow missed the perfect opportunity to do it. Also earlier this week, the Times reported a meeting uh, a year ago between the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and the British Ambassador for China, Caroline Wilson, in which we're told Caroline Wilson pointed out that in order to increase trade and, and have a, a stronger partnership, why can't the UK treat China like the French? It's reported. Liz Truss replied, because the French don't commit genocide. So the rhetoric is ratcheting up. Throw in tensions over Hong Kong, fears over Taiwan, and a, a lot of frustration over China's reluctance to aid the WHO's investigation of, of COVID-19 and its origins. And there are an awful lot of people at the moment you'll hear all over the media and all over politics across the West who are saying it's time we treat China as an adversary. Whilst that's what the hawks will tell you, not everyone agrees. Some people believe that cooperation with China rather than confrontation is the biggest and most important foreign policy objective of the 21st century. We're not going to defeat China in the way we defeated the USSR, they'll tell you. China will always exist, and the more hostile we are to it, the more its people are likely to be hostile to us. Unlike the USSR, China isn't trying to impose some global ideology on us. So is it time that we sort of understood and sought to manage China's interests and seek partnership in as many ways as we possibly can? Which side is right? 
Hopefully, by the end of tonight, you'll have made up your mind. Let's hear from our speakers. Um, the first speaker tonight to propose the motion, it's time to treat China like an adversary, is Nathan Law, uh, a remarkable Hong Kong activist who's currently here in exile. Nathan, during the Umbrella Movement in 2014, was one of the five representatives who took part in the dialogue with the Hong Kong government debating political reform. He set up his own political party, along with a now-jailed activist, Joshua Wong, and he was elected as the youngest legislative councillor in Hong Kong history in 2016. He's also just written a book, which you can buy at the end of the event, called Freedom, How We Lose It, and how we get it back. Ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Law. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. When it, when, when it was in 2017, I remember when I was in a Hong Kong jail um, because of participation in peaceful assembly, I can still remember I was treated like a number instead of a citizen. Still, I was luckier than a lot of people living in Xinjiang. Human rights report says that there are roughly 1.6 million to 3 million Uyghurs being locked in modern-day concentration camp. They are forcefully detained to unlearn their culture and sometimes being tortured. There are a variety of reasons why they are there. Sometimes they're just texting their foreign relatives. Uh, sometimes they're learning Uyghur language. And sometimes they're just being a teacher. And sometimes there are just no reasons. Some of you are professors sitting there. Being a professor and a Uyghur in China could be dangerous. Ikham Tate, a Uyghur scholar promoting moder moderation, moderation and reconciliation between Han Chinese and Uyghurs, was sentenced to life imprisonment in 2014. According to his friends and daughter, he is nowhere near an extremist or violence agitator. Some of you sitting down there, I can see a lot of young faces, are student activists. Joshua Wong, my best friend, who is now in jail, who was just graduated from university and the face of protest in Hong Kong, has been jailed for almost a year. The government accused him of participating in a primary election. So the government basically says that if you participate in a primary election in Hong Kong in order to get the majority in the legislature and in order to block government's bill, you are committing a subversive action in order to overturn the government. Under this definition, every single opposition candidate in the UK will be jailed in Hong Kong. The regime has also prosecuted thousands of protesters in 2019. Some of them are prosecuted just because they chanted certain slogan. Some of them just because they uphold certain political beliefs. Ladies and gentlemen, these are all done under the Chinese Communist regime. Do you really want to partner with them? Tonight's motion is, it's time to treat China like an adversary, not a partner. How do we understand partnership? Partnership is about trust, is about respect and identify with each other's value. So the fundamental question you should ask yourself before you uh, fall next is, is China led by totalitarian regime, Chinese Communist Party, and the dictator Xi Jinping, a trusted and respectful ally that shares similar values with us? We're not talking about war. It's a narrative that is a slippery slope and people who want to give a free pass impunity to China uses because we've got a lot of different mechanisms to hold a human rights perpetrator accountable other than going to war. It's not about Cold War-style containment strategy. We all understand that the world is so complicated, so intertwined, that it is impossible to dissect into two worlds, into two economic systems. Identifying them as adversary is to make a clear point. Human rights and freedom are our central beliefs. We should try to stop a totalitarian regime like the Chinese Communist Party to get a free pass. China as an adversary, we can still do business. We can still interact. Doing these things does not mean that we have to see them as our partner. We see the Chinese Communist Party as an adversary because it intends to dismantle democratic values by totalitarianism attack democratic countries by sharp and soft power, and deprive their people from their democratic rights. The very first priority of the Chinese Communist Party is to retain in power at all costs, even though they have to roll over their people with tanks. In China nowadays, they are literally more sophisticated and more technologically advanced than the Orwellian state. 
China has the largest video surveillance system in the world, monitoring everything, including your water bill and how you walk. Social credit system is in place in some of the testing cities that it micro-controls how people behave and also persecute activists more by limiting the opportunity to travel, to take buses, to take plane. They have complete control over media. Every media outlet, there are party organs to monitor them, and let alone the gigantic internet firewall that Chinese people just cannot receive the information from external worlds. Propaganda, surveillance, disinformation, denial of truth, and manipulation, and rewriting of the past. These are textbook characteristics of a totalitarian state, and China does it better than the one depicted in the book 1984. In 2013, the dictator Xi just assumed power and issued document number nine. It describes promoting Western constitutional democracy, promoting universal values, civil society, and free press, etc., as the seven noteworthy problems that destabilize the hegemony of the Chinese Communist Party. These concepts have to be wiped off from their system and from the public discussion. These are just a part of the abundance of proof that from the very beginning, they see the democratic system as rivalry, as adversary. We didn't start that idea. They did. If a country is so hostile to our fundamental beliefs, do you feel like it would be possible for them to be a good partner? And their attacks is not only happening on domestic level, but on a global level. They're supporting different human rights perpetrators regime around the world, including the Myanmar military junta, who just murder people uh, and who just conducted a coup in February, and also the North Korean leaders, and also persecuting ex exile activists extraterritorially, extralegally, and also economically blackmailing countries that criticize them, like Norway, like Australia, like Indonesia. All these things combined, the Chinese Communist Party becomes the largest champion of dictators around the world. The latest Human Rights Foundation report says that it is a driving force behind global assaults on human rights. And even so, there are still people from opposition claim that China is too important and too powerful to see them as a rivalry. Of course, I understand the massiveness of China's economy. But that's the reason why we should start resisting start to decrease our reliance, start with diversifying our economy. We've been on the wrong track to presume China would liberalize themselves for over the past decade. We should be worrying but not appeasing when you see such a regime become so powerful. We should act 10 years ago. We should act yesterday. We should act now. We should not, we should not wait until tomorrow before the democratic values erode so deeply that there is no turning back. If democratic countries united, we've got more than half of the global economy, and that's enough to counter Beijing's threat. In 2020, despite Beijing's economic coercion, China remains Australia's largest trading partner. Overall trade between the two nations is down just 2% in value since China's import bans. New markets were found for many Australian ports. For example, much of the wine once destined for China now comes to the UK. Standing up against a Chinese communist regime is not a doomsday. And for some, they will say that, well, we must collaborate with China over a climate change issue. I agree this is the most fundamental, most important issue that we have to face in this era. But I really don't like the idea that we must relinquish our critics to China's human rights violation. Otherwise, they won't do nothing. It is basically not true. China themselves have strong incentive to address the problem. They have a lot of heat wave, float, extreme weathers. We've seen that on news. When we engage them before, we have solid grounds to believe that they have no intention to honor promises and treaties from their experience in WTO, South China Sea dispute, and from the situation in Hong Kong. Well, what we need is not empty words of collaboration, but de developing concrete means to measure and ensure the outcome of it. We've seen so many atrocities conducted by the regime alone. And tonight is our opportunity to say enough is enough. China is not our partner. A totalitarian regime is not our power. It is not our partner and never will be. Vote for human rights. Vote for democratic values. 
and support actions of conscience. Support Ehem to take Joshua Wong, Jimmy Lai, Lester Shame, Edward Leung. Remember their names. They should not be forgotten. They are not numbers. They are human. Thank you so much. I'm delighted now to call up our first speaker to oppose the motion tonight. She is Shirley Yu, and she's a director of the China Africa Initiative at the London School of Economics. She's also a senior fellow at the Ash Center of Harvard Kennedy School and a frequent speaker on China's political economy, in particular China's Belt and Road Initiative and its geopolitical implications. She's written three books in Chinese, On China, by Ambassadors, and The Rise of the Renminbi, and The Fall of the Yen, saved. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Shirley Yu. Thank you, Intelligence Squared. Nathan, we're one people. I feel natural closeness with you. Madam Chair, ladies and gentlemen, I have been waiting for the past 10 months to hear the Biden administration's clear strategy on China. And this is the best I've come to understand. We must compete with China on some, collaborate on others, and confront on the rest. I call this the Biden administration's piecemeal China policy. For anyone who appreciates the long telegraph and the containment strategy that brought victory to the Cold War, we understand that the policies need to be strategic, comprehensive, and clearly articulated. And if today, let me ask you, does the U.S., the leader of the free world, see China as an adversary or a partner? You may just tell me. It's puzzling. When the liberal global order was established in the 20th century, the United States took up nearly 50% of the global GDP. Now, with that kind of global scale, the U.S. could absolutely build the global order according to its own image. Today, no longer. The U.S. is about a quarter of the global GDP. China came close to about 80% of the United States, and China's economic size is already bigger than that of the EU combined. Chinese economist Justin Yifolin asked a rhetorical question. When would the United States concede to China's success? It would be when China's economy is twice the size of the United States and its per capita GDP at half of the United States. And I agree that when China gets there, it will be almost too late for the United States to reverse course or history. The West should not treat China as an adversary. Reason one, because the U.S. is currently suffering from imperial overreach just as the U.K. did at the turn of the 20th century. The U.S. is no longer exerting the type of global leadership that are essential to support and uphold global liberal democratic values. In July 2019, U.S. Congress passed the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. There were rumors at the time that the U.S. was going to sanction Chinese banks by removing them from the international SWIFT system. And had the U.S. done that, the Chinese banking system would have just collapsed. The U.S. did not choose the fatal option. And instead, U.S. Congress sanctioned a lineup of Hong Kong and Chinese senior officials. The outcome? The only pain, I think, for Carrie Lam is that she has to get reacquainted with using cash. And at next week uh, in Beijing, at the sixth plenum of the Chinese uh, Communist Party's Congress, a new Chinese leadership lineup will be announced for the next decade. And with that, the current legislative lineup will be deemed obsolete. So the pain the U.S. has imposed on China over Hong Kong and other issues has been so minuscule and that's emboldened China on other territorial ambitions. In January, a coup happened in Aung San Suu Kyi's government in Myanmar. The Biden administration waged the sanctions, but the, uh, the military junta is still running Myanmar. If no protection of democracy could be achieved in a small economy such as Myanmar, think about what the U.S. can do to a large economy such as China. 
If God does not destroy the illusion of how much the U.S. is actually supporting global democracy and human rights movement, I don't know what else does. So Nathan, the U.S.'s fragile support has helped co-create Hong Kong's tragedy, and maybe soon in Taiwan. The West should not treat China as an adversary because the Cold War can be peaceful and competition can be great. The U.S. and China have been in a de facto Cold War 2.0 for a couple of years now. China is not going out to the world to build a global proletariat community, as Mao Zedong once claimed, and it would be wrong to conceive. Today's、uh, global paradigm on an ideological basis, but Cold War 1.0 was ironically also named the Long Peace. A bipolar global order is inherently more stable than the unipolar world. Bipolarity brings not only peace. But also severe competition centered on technology. So today, China is arguably the de facto global leader on telecom infrastructure. China will soon launch the world's first major sovereign digital currency that aims at revamping the 20th century global monetary order. China's autonomous driving technology, the first widely adopted application on AI, is arguably at par with the United States. China owns 70 percent of the global solar energy supply. Supply chain, and most of it is located in Xinjiang, China. Of the top ten wind turbine installers in 2020, seven were Chinese, and in 2020, China launched one third of the global satellites. Two millennia of global economic history has taught us one thing: that the world has only begun to economically take off. On the back of the industrial revolution, so whoever owns the next global technological frontier is going to own the leadership of the 21st century. Now, competition is a great thing. During Cold War of the 20th century, U.S. landed on the moon. We stopped that because competition was over. Now, in 2024, Americans will be on the moon once again. And in the meantime, China has just launched core capsules, core capsules of its own international space station. Now, when we have the world's two largest powers in a fierce competition, eventually it is the whole world that are going to be the beneficiary with this level of exacerbated technological diffusion. The world should not treat China as an adversary because China is the bridge to the 21st and the 22nd century. China's technological rise is not isolated. China is bringing the developing world with it. With China's digital partnership, Rwanda, a country that suffered from genocide in 1998, has just become one of the world's top five fastest-growing economies, according to the IMF. And in a Cuban newspaper, a headline flashed. That Havana is going to have 5G before Miami. Now think about this possibility. What about Nigeria having 5G before the UK? It would be because of China, because China's rise means the rise of the developing world. Africa by 2060 is going to have the labor force equivalent to both China and India's combined. And as China supercharges into an aging society, China will be left with no option but to deeply intertwine its industrial supply chain with ASEAN and increasingly with Africa. China today single-handedly owns 20% of Africa's debt, builds one third of Africa's power. Infrastructure. China finances, in various degrees, 46 ports across sub-Saharan Africa, and China has built submarine infrastructure to provide high-speed internet to the continent. Now, on the contrary, we see consistent U.S. FDI outflow out of Africa. If the West isolates China, then how does the West connect with the 21st century global economic reality that is going to be led by Asia and the 22nd century increasingly led by Africa? The last point: Why the West should not treat China as an adversary is because China, by definition, will evolve over time. Chinese history has shown、um, that it's extended over 20. Major dynastic periods, starting from approximately two millennia BC, and in some of these dynastic periods, of course, China was divided into five or ten kingdoms at the same time. The People's Republic of China 
as you may say, is the 21st major ruling period of the Chinese landmass. And now, without a doubt, this won't be the last ruling polity in China or the end of history. For China, what has given the Chinese Communist Party the ruling legitimacy has been the consistent rise of economic prosperity. The current plan is by 2035, China's per capita GDP is going to hit 20,000 U.S. dollars, putting China solidly in a high-income country status. Now, if there were a concept of social contract, and by the way, there is not, it would be. Exchange of economic prosperity for social stability, but there is a danger that the Chinese government may not consistently continue to produce that economic prosperity. So China will remain a vulnerable power, filled with many domestic challenges. And I would suggest that the West let's just stay chill. For by 2050, let's give China the benefit of the time and let China mature. And I can guarantee you, by 2050, the China that we will be dealing with will be a very different China from the one that we see today. Fukuyama once said that human history must be seen not as a succession of civilizations or a succession of economic accomplishments. And more importantly, it must be seen. As a succession of different forms of consciousness, we are on the learning curve together. Thank you. Thank you, Shirley. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting. Financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud. You see, no hardware needed, so you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. netsuite.com/squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theater, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic *1984* was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece *Sutra*, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners: Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo. Code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And now our third speaker tonight is another speaker for the motion. It's time to treat China as an adversary rather than a partner. And I'm really glad tonight to be able to introduce you to Alan Mendoza, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Henry Jackson Society, the foreign policy and national security think tank which promotes freedom and liberty.、Um, Alan is also a columnist for the City AM, London's business newspaper, and is a frequent commentator for the BBC, Sky. Bloomberg. Everyone wants a piece of Alan, so we're delighted he could join us tonight. Thank you. Well, thank you for that very warm、uh, introduction. And I want to start this evening, ladies and gentlemen, by focusing on the actual words in the motion itself, or the language of the motion, because it asks us whether we should be considering China as a partner or an adversary. And I think those are important terms, because the real definition of being a partner is not merely one of being engaged neutrally with another person or entity, but the sense that you share something much bigger with them—a commonality across various areas. That you are consciously working towards building something better as a unit than you could do separately.
think of a business partner, for example, or even, dare I say, and I see a few of those, a romantic partner, even. Would you feel that those are people who had your joint best interests at heart? Of course you would. Would they be people you respected for the way they behaved? Absolutely. Would they be people you trusted completely? Of course, the answer is yes. Now contrast that with the behavior of an adversary. That is someone who you are invariably engaged in competition with. And I think actually, Shirley pointed out all the areas of competition which will drive us towards landing on the moon again, but they are areas of competition nonetheless with a country that is clearly an adversary. Would you feel that such a country had your best interests at heart? Of course not. Do you think you would admire the way they behaved? Not at all. Would you trust them? Absolutely not. I think you can see where I'm going with this. Because the plain fact is that when you consider the reality of China today and its regime, it is clearly in the adversary camp and not in the partnership. And I think it is important to state, as was said at the start, actually, this is the Chinese regime we are talking about, the Communist Party of China, not the Chinese people, many of whom would agree that the state is unsuitable to its interests and hates them because of the way it controls them, if only they had a chance to express themselves. Because, of course, ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that in 2021, China is an oppressive police state and a surveillance state. Now, back in the old Cold War days, it was a joke. You would go to a hotel in the Soviet Union, if you're a foreign diplomat, you'd turn up, there'd be no towels, and you'd say, stand in the middle of the room, talk to yourself, there are no towels in this room. And suddenly a flunky would appear at the door a few minutes later with towels. That was Soviet-style surveillance. Today in China, it is much more advanced than that. Your, your thoughts are monitored on the internet, your words are checked out in uh, social messaging apps. Everything is monitored to make sure that you do not divert from the party line. And if you do divert from that line, you risk losing benefits or you risk being taken away. You could even risk never be seen again. That is the nature of China today. And that is, of course, if you are part of the majority Han Chinese uh, population. If you happen to be one of those poor unfortunate people who are a group the Chinese state wishes to subjugate, like the Ouijas, like the Tibetans, like the Falun Gong, your fate is much worse. Those freedom fighters in Tibet risk constant arrest and torture for their actions. If you're the Falun Gong, you have to go deep into private life to practice your beliefs. And of course, if you're a Ouija, you face a prospect of slavery in concentration camps and worse, acts of genocide that we know have been taking place in Xinjiang province. Now, I ask you, look at that for one second. Think about it. Is that the behavior of a partner you would like? Or is it the behavior of an adversary that you actually face? Because those are not the values of this country, but they are the values of China today. But perhaps you need more convincing. So let's take a look at COP26, just in the news. Of course, efforts made internationally by many countries to try and counter the terrible threat of climate change. Now, China is the world's biggest greenhouse gas emitter, and it is responsible for 25% of the world's total emissions. Yet its president chose not to attend the conference, and instead gave a mealy-mouthed statement that merely restated current uh, commitments of China. And China's national emissions plan is widely regarded as not being anywhere near enough to keep the global temperature from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius. And equally, if you look at what China has done in recent weeks, it has, of course, not signed up to the uh, methane emissions treaty that many would like to join. 80 countries did. China didn't. And, of course, it's decided to start firing up coal uh, power stations. Now, why is it doing that? Because it needs to for its own economic interests. So here we are sitting in the UK and Glasgow trying to act in the world's interest, and China once again acting in its own interest. Why? Because it's an adversary, not a partner. Partners work together, adversaries work in their own interest, and China once again has demonstrated that. But okay, let's take that aside. Let's try another arena. Let's look at how China's neighbors and our other friends in the region view that country. Would that give us some confidence about China's true intentions? Unfortunately not. Wherever you look in the East and South China Seas, China generates only fear and concern about its behavior. Whether it is seizing or building islands in its neighborhood in breach of the United Nations Convention on the law of the sea or sparring with countries like Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines, China's aggressive bullying behavior should give us cause for concern about where our own relationship might be headed. 
pissy, poor Australia, which was hit with a barley and wine boycott for having the temerity suggest that there should be a proper investigation into the origins of COVID-19, which even the World Health Organization now says is impossible to conduct because of the opposition of the Chinese regime to allowing us to understand what really went on in the Wuhan Institute of Virology in those days before coronavirus began to run riot around the world. And spare a thought for Taiwan, a true partner to this country, constantly menaced by the Chinese military and Chinese diplomatic maneuvers designed to threaten and cow that country in submission for daring to suggest it might be better off as an independent nation rather than reunited under the communist jackboot. Partner or adversary? Our other friends would say very much the latter. And then there is the IP theft and industrial espionage that China engages on an industrial scale. Would you trust a country that stole from you? Because that is what China does to countries who once saw themselves as partners. The U.S. Independent and Bipartisan Commission on the Theft of American Intellectual Property estimated that IP theft costs the U.S. between $225 and $600 billion annually. That's 1.3% to 3% of U.S. GDP. And in its report, the IP Commission was clear where the blame lay, stating unequivocally that China is the world's principal IP infringer. And in case you're feeling left out here as a British audience sitting here in London tonight, in December 2018, the National Cyber Security Center announced that a group of Chinese hackers known as APT-10 acted on behalf of the Chinese Ministry of State Security to carry out a malicious cyber campaign targeting intellectual property in the UK. And it's in advisory note, that body revealed that the UK was a significant target of AP-10. Perhaps this is why the British and US governments have banned the involvement of Chinese companies like like Huawei from involvement in critical infrastructure projects because they believe it is too great a risk to have Chinese involvement in them. Hardly the behavior expected of a country regardless of partner, much more that of an adversary. I could go on. I could cite the fact that China recently engaged in threats against British naval vessels, exercising the right of freedom of navigation in international waters near China. Or that China has placed sanctions on British members of parliament, former colleagues of uh, Sir Vince, uh, who have dared to call out a behaviour. But I don't think I need to. Because the plain fact is that many of us in this room will feel that China's doubts about China's intentions have grown, not diminished, in recent years, and are likely to grow still further. The China of 2050 that was spoken of. Is that a China more likely to be our friend or our enemy? I'm afraid the direction of travel is clear. And that is why I hope you will listen to those voices that you have said tonight what China is really about and agree with this side of the house that China today, and even more importantly, China tomorrow is an adversary and not a partner. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Uh, and I'm delighted now to announce our final speaker tonight, uh, Sir Vince Cable, MP for Twickenham for over 20 years, leader of the Liberal Democrats between 2017 and 2019, and he was the Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills in the Coalition Government between 2010 and 2015, and the President of the Board of Trade. Vince has also written a number of books, including his latest, which will be available at the end of the event tonight, called The Chinese Conundrum, Engagement or Conflict, examining the long history of China and the West. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I agree with the previous speaker that the debate hinges on what we mean by partnership. Uh, and I want to start with, with, with the economic arguments and repeat some of what Cindy said earlier, that if we go back half a century, we had some, in China, some of the utter horrors of the modern world. Uh, Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution. This was a, a country characterized as it had been for a century with uh, famine, uh, hunger, poverty, and chaos. But Deng and his successors uh, converted China into a successful capitalist economy and in the process turned China into what is now the biggest economy in the world on some measures, 
biggest trading partner in the world, the biggest recipient of foreign investment. And China is the future of the world economy, followed by India in due course. And it's self-indulgent to the point of silliness to believe that we can do any other than seriously engage with a country of this kind. And I spent five years in government trying to do that. And we had good outcomes. We, know, we still have a, an integrated steel industry. The Chinese firm bought Scunthorpe from Tata Steel. We, we will have an um, electric vehicle industry because the Chinese company is building one of the biggest battery companies in the world in the northeast of England. Uh, Jaguar Land Rover's vast sales and profits in China have helped that company to expand the industry in the West Midlands. AstraZeneca has provided our vaccine on the back of massive sales and profits in China. Uh, I'm based in a university, and British University students' expansion has been financed by 125,000 Chinese students every year coming and paying commercial fees. But that's a bit parochial. If you look at it from a global standpoint, it was actually the Chinese, along with Gordon Brown and Obama, who refloated the world economy after the crash uh, and the banks collapsed. Uh, the Chinese have consistently, over four decades, used their vast holdings of American dollars to keep the world monetary system stable, to prevent currency wars. It wasn't the Chinese. It was the last president of the United States, and probably the next one, who systematically tried to sabotage the world trading system on which the prosperity of rich and poor countries depends. And coincidentally, right now, the Chinese are, amid this plethora of economic announcements, opening their economy, as they've been urged by Westerners to do, uh, to the financial sector, um, the biggest banks in the world, the Black Rocks and JP Morgans, right now are being given free range to go into China, set up institutions, buy up shares for Western investors. Um, but of course, it's not all economics. We, we, we've heard about human rights, and China is authoritarian, extremely authoritarian, can be brutal. There's no point trying to conceal that, I don't conceal it. But um, we have to, what we have to look at is the balance between, on the one hand, their enormous advances in economic and social rights, and the very, very lamentable record in human rights. And in fact, uh, China ranks above only Saudi Arabia in the Freedom House classification of human rights abuses. Saudi, of course, being one of our close partners economically and militarily. Uh, but, but it is a, you know, there are many rights abusers, of course, there's no doubt about that. But there's one fact to remember. Uh, before the COVID restrictions came in, every year, 130 million Chinese left China to work, to study, to shop, do their tourism. At the end of it, they went back freely. And it's worthwhile remembering that the Henry Jackson Institute was set up in the name of an American senator who campaigned against the Soviet Union because they wouldn't let people out. The Chinese do let people out. They go and they come back. And they consent to do so. So this is an authoritarian regime, but of a particular kind that commands the support of a large number of its own people. But the concern that's been expressed on the panel is it's the way it looks to the rest of the world. And you, in a caricatured form, you often say, you know, China's militaristic, it's aggressive, it's trying to conquer the world. It's worth noting that Chinese spend 2% of their national product on defense, the same as we do, NATO average. The Americans, and I'm a great fan of the United States, have 200 military bases around the world. The Chinese have two. They are, little known fact, the largest contributor to United Nations peacekeeping. So it's, you know, there is a lot of aggressive language, but the reality is a bit different. 
And President Xi set out his stall very clearly 10 years ago when he became president. He said, look, China is like this. We, we, we don't export terrorism. We're not sending you hungry refugees. We don't mess with you. Don't mess with us. Okay, it's, it, it's crude, but it's a very clear statement of a Chinese approach to the, the rest of the world, which is non-interference and territorial integrity, which is, accounts for the position they take on Xinjiang and Hong Kong and Taiwan. And it has a lot of support in the rest of the world. You know, we feel there's also moral indignation in the UK about China. But when the American administration, the Trump administration, alleged for the first time about the abuse of Muslims in Xinjiang and leading to extermination on some claims, and there undoubtedly is human rights abuse, every single Islamic majority country in the world of any substance, including the democratically elected Indonesia, Malaysia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nigeria, supported the Chinese position. Why would they do that? But the argument is not about fundamentally about non-interference. It is about partnership to solve common problems. And just my, my final comment is this. The, we, we have a whole series of international public goods, common headaches. Global warming is one, pandemics is another, nuclear proliferation is probably the most serious of all. Now, without China, we cannot begin to solve these problems. You know, our existence depends on having a partnership with them. And you can argue about whether the Chinese or the Americans made the biggest lack of contribution to the climate talk. But actually, they have to work together and they have to cooperate. Otherwise, these problems will never be solved. So that's why I believe we have to form a partnership. A new Cold War doesn't help anybody. Thank you. Thank you, Vince, and thanks to all of our speakers tonight. Um, we are about to open the debate up to the audience. We'll try to get through as many questions as possible. Um, before we do that, though, I just want to announce the results of the pre-vote that we did at the start of the session. And uh, it looks very much at the start of, of tonight's event that um, people do think we should be treating China as an adversary by 53% against people for partnership was 22%, undecided 25%. So there's still an opportunity there for you. Um, let's see where we get to by the end of the night. But could we begin with you? Thank you very much. Um, I'd, just like, I'd like to ask Shirley and Vince just one question. What's the single thing you'd want China to change to be easier to partner with? Maybe I'll go first. China has uh, developed enormous hard power, needless to say, both uh, economic power but also military power. But China has not yet matured with its uh, soft power. The West has tremendous amount of soft power. And so if China needs to learn one thing and grow maturely on the global stage, it would be that China needs to learn uh, and develop its soft power. I'll give you one quick example. In the recent post-COVID-19 world, China continues to talk about win-win solutions. When we talked about relieving African debt, China said, well, we prefer to resort to African debt issues on a bilateral level on a win-win basis. Now, Condoleezza Rice, former U.S. Secretary of State, said once, if China wants to be the global leader, let it, because unless China becomes one, China would not understand the sacrifices it takes to be a global leader. And China, needless to say, as if China does aspire to take on the global leadership responsibility, then China needs to understand the world is no longer about win-win. It is about lose-win because it takes true leadership to lose in order for the rest of the world to win. Vince? 
Well, it's a slightly flippant answer, but I, I would say probably the most important thing they need at the moment is good public relations advice. They got um, terribly, uh, terrible at presenting themselves, actually. Um, there is a very good defense. And, uh, well, I've written a book. You can form your judgments as to whether, what, what role it performs. But, you know, actually, you know, there are many, the little factoid I mentioned about participating in UN peacekeeping. Uh, the fact that their, their military defense is very, very limited, except in some highly specialized high-tech areas. Uh, they've, they've started using this, rather foolishly in my view, this uh, wolf warrior communication system, which none of us understand. It's, it's a peculiar use of language. And it's very off-putting and gives the impression that Chinese are highly aggressive, which is actually not the case. And I'm going to ask for a question from the, the left. Hi, um, thank you for this. Um, so my question is, I, first of all, I was very surprised by the results. I find them very emotional. I would, I would personally propose partnership. But my question is, we've talked a lot about the U.S., but what's your view on the European Union and also on a, in a post-Brexit era? What's the view on how the U.K. and the EU should be working on defining a partnership with China? Because I think post-Trump, we're also alone in this. So I'd love to understand, for a good partnership, there needs to be you know, two sides. And uh, the U.S. has mentioned a fair bit, but I'd really love to understand more about EU, U.K., and, and how we're going to get there together. Well, Vince, we'll start with you. Um, what should well, yes, I think, I think putting it in a post-Brexit context is a very good one. I mean, I think if Britain wanted to be in the comfortable position of always dealing with countries with the same values and same standards, we should have stayed in the European Union, but we didn't. And we're now a, a global Britain, which means we have to engage with the world as it actually is outside. And we, we tend to forget, I mean, there's a lot of you know, pontificating about China, but some of Britain's closest economic and defense relationships are with countries like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and Egypt, Turkey, uh, which have human rights records, which in some cases are as bad or worse than with China. I mean, that's the world we have to deal with. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm afraid just shutting it out. I mean, to just, just a quick rejoinder to an early point. People that are indignant that the Chinese are lending money to Africa. Why are they lending money to Africa? Because we have walked away, right? Britain's politics aid program, Western multinationals have pulled out. There's a vacuum. The Chinese have advanced capital for development because nobody else will. And then we lecture the Chinese and say they're behaving badly. I mean, there's extraordinary self-righteousness here, which is totally unacceptable. Alan, I'm going to go to you. Um, I mean, do, do you accept Vince's point? You know, in a post-Brexit world, we now have to we now have Look, to take partnerships wherever we can get them. No one is saying that we shouldn't engage with China. I mean, no one on this side would say boycott China, go to war with China. That's not what we're saying. We're saying be alive as to the reality of who you are dealing with. You know, and Vince mentioned certain regimes who we aren't particularly uh, proud of. Our, I think our human rights, uh, you know, records. Uh, yet we still deal with them. The reality is that we know what those regimes are all about. We know and we, there are limits as a result to how closely we do act with them. And that's really where the EU's going to have to go with China as well. It's going to obviously have to trade with China. No one suggests that's not a good thing. However, must it trade in China in key strategic industries where national security of various countries are engaged with? You know, you discover that China actually ends up with a, a monopoly or at least um, a large proportion of some of the most key components to uh, a nation's security. That's not a sensible place to be once you've identified Identified, it's not really a true partner and adversary. Okay, trade with it, trade with it in certain goods, but let's not pretend that we can avoid where that country's uh, real likely interests are. They won't be aligned with us. We therefore need to protect ourselves. So it's a realistic engagement. It's understanding China's a big country, we want to be part of it, but we must make sure we are not so intertwined that should there be a crisis, we are not held hostage to what the Chinese do, because we've seen it so many times before. The Australian case is just one example of how China punishes countries who don't agree with it. And that's a bad news for everyone in that sense. So can I just quickly respond to this national security issue? Because the issue of Huawei and 5G was raised earlier. And I happened to deal with this in government over a five-year period. And was repeatedly reassured by the intelligence community, who should know, 
the, our dealings were totally safe. And the same judgment was followed by Theresa May when she succeeded the government I was in. And the reason we have disengaged from China and Huawei and 5G has got nothing to do with British national security. It's because we were told by the Americans that we had to. And the Germans, who took a view in their national interest, kept with 5G. And as if Britain had, we would now be at the forefront of countries using the most advanced telecommunications technology, and we're not. No, no, I have to come back on that. I'm sorry, I have to come back on that, because that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a point of view. However, the other point of view is quite clearly that having a company which, has, um, which would be, of course, uh, responsible to the Chinese government if at any moment it wanted data and control of that company, being part of your communications network is a disaster for this country. We've seen examples where Chinese companies have been told what to do by the Chinese state. That's not a place for any country which has serious national security issues to allow such a company to control its 5G uh, network. And that's why Britain did not do it. Nothing to do with American pressure in that regard. So oh, am I taking on. from yeah. here that the EU, the UK, don't have a strategy to engage? Because it seems... Uh, well, um, should I jump in this question? Yeah. Well, I think if we, we're talking partnership as if we're seeing China, there are no problems in China and there are no problems in the way that we engage with them for the past decades. And that's something that I don't agree with. Uh, we have to engage with it, but we have to see how they abuse that kind of like trading relationship and their power over the world to conduct all sorts of uh, bad behaviors, including they're using forced labor to export uh, their the solar panel, they're using forced labor to do work, work on Xinjiang cotton. They're doing a lot of economic uh, blackmailing to countries like Norway when they well, after they uh, the, no the Nobel Peace uh, uh, Prize was awarded to Liu Xiaobo they blocked the trade even though it was not about the government but the institute but the Chinese government still do so, still using their belligerent behavior in order to silence the other countries. If you look at the, the case of the Australia, the propaganda machine is describing Australia as the gum under the shoes. And that's the reason why we have to work on defining that as adversary in order to work on these problems until we've got a respectable and we've got a, a relationship that both sides agree on. And, and this is the result why we are not talking about partnership now, but we should have made some change. We've just got time to, to move to the closing statements. I'm going to invite Vince first to just in a minute sum up your side of the argument. Well, I, I just, in the two minutes I have, perhaps just rehearse Minute. what I said at the, at the end of my, my original comments, which is to try to focus on those issues where we have common threats and the need to build partnerships to deal with them. I mean, the whole week has been filled with COP and climate change, and rightly, it's an existential problem. And there's a lot of finger-pointing you know, the Chinese are the biggest emitters. Well, actually, in cumulative terms, they certainly aren't. But anyway, regardless of who is to blame, um, there are many things that, you know, the Americans are doing positively and others that they fail to do on coal. The Chinese have actually made a commitment and are now implementing carbon pricing, which has proved too difficult in the West, particularly the States. They have banned the export of coal generation power stations. They have got the biggest um, renewable power sector in the world, and they're putting it to use. But if we're operating in a Cold War environment in which there is no cooperation and China is treated as a threat, and we're obsessed, for example, by you know, the intellectual property around solar power rather than actually how you share it, uh, then this problem is not going to be solved, and it is a horrendous issue. I'm much personally much more concerned about another problem, which is nuclear proliferation. Uh, we have issues of North Korea, Iran, Pakistan, and the Taliban. The Chinese, as it happens, have an entree to those governments which we don't have. They could, if they were minded and we worked with them, act in a restraining and helpful way, or they could make mischief. We don't know. 
but it is in everybody's interest that we actually do work with them. And the rules of the world international economic system that has made this country and the rest of the world prosperous in the last 70 years is in serious peril. Now, the world trade system, the monetary system, it needs stable governance. The Americans led it for this time, and they've generally led it pretty well until Trump. But we've now got two, two economic superpowers, and they're going to have to share responsibility, and the Chinese are going to have to be given equal status, and they will do it in their own way with Chinese characteristics. But we need them as partners. There is no other way that we can deal with these problems without them. Thank, Thank you. you, Ben. Alan, just in a minute. Absolutely. Right. Two questions for you. The first question is, do you, deep down, think about it carefully, do you feel more worried about China internationally and domestically uh, than you did five years ago today? I think deep down all of us somewhere feel that the answer will likely be yes to that. And if that is the case, you don't. That's very interesting. Well, I'd love to know later why. Um, after all the bullying, the harassment, the international threats, the breaking of international law, the economic exploitation, the genocide. After all of that, okay, we can talk about it. We can talk about it. Now, the second question, whether you answered yes or no to the first, given the direction of travel, think about five, ten years' time. Do you think China is going to be more or less of a threat internationally and domestically than before? And the answer, indisputably, on this side of the house is yes, it will be. And if you do believe that, then you surely have the obligation to think about this carefully and go, that means it's an adversary and not a partner. Adversary doesn't mean you don't you cut off contact with it, you've still got to do engage, you've still got to do things, but be realistic about where that country is heading, and it is not to a good destination. Thanks, Alan. Just in a minute, Shirley, your case. Alan is a great campaigner, but let me appeal to some reason here. In the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides said the norm of the state is that the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. 600 years ago, world economic gravity has shifted from the Eurasian continent or the inner crescent of the world to the outer crescent to the Atlantic region. And now we are starting to see the world's economic gravity shifting back to the Eurasian continent. But for that few centuries, we have had the liberal democratic values that have essentially defined the world, and we have been living in a cozy Pax Americana world for the past seven plus decades. Pax Americana and Pax Britannica were amazing golden eras of our world history, but they are not the global norm. In the post-Pax Americana world, before the U.S. and China definitively wins out in this global economic race until we see a definitive winner, the world is going to be fundamentally dominated by Hobbesian values. That is, international relations will be once again governed by anarchy and the power in security. And in this Hobbesian world, international relations, national interest matters, and balance of power matters. Nathan, final word. In 1989, after the Tiananmen Massacre, a lot of foreign countries uh, indeed input a lot of boycotts in, Hong, in, in China and have arms about goals and a lot of different measures. UK was among one of them who uh, were the very first to ease the relationship, to warm the relationship. In the year 2001, China joined WTO. In the year 2008, they had the Olympic. But then I was a proud Chinese. I cheered whenever Chinese got the gold medal. Everyone in the world cheered for China's achievement. In the year 2014-2015, the UK government coined the term of golden era. It really means that uh, the UK government back then wanted to have a warm and nice relationship with the Chinese government. But look at decades of engagement, what we have left. Are millions of people living in modern-day concentration camp. Forced labors, Hong Kong protests being cracked, thousands of my friends in jail. And China, when Xi Jinping talked about win-win situation, it means that China wins twice. They are dominating world's economy, but also exporting their authoritarianism, and we've got ample evidence of it. So when we talk about partners, when we talk about adversary, we're not partnering with someone has the power has the economic superiority because they could use those things to do bad things. 
We are partnering with like-minded allies to promote our mutual beliefs, to promote our democratic values, because we believe in inner dignity, freedom, and democracy. And that is why we have to see it as an adversary. That's why we have to make it strict that we're doing it for global democracy and for future generations and for the people who still felt, who still speak freely and who could still live from fear. Thank you. I'd like to thank all four of our speakers tonight for making their cases so powerfully. The talking on this side of the room is now over. It's time for the audience to decide. So please do now submit your final vote for or against the motion. It's time to treat China as an adversary, not a partner. At the start of this event, before anyone had heard the speakers, 53% of the audience was for the motion, was for treating China as an adversary, 22% were for treating China as a partner, and 25% were undecided. So it'll be interesting to see where we get to. Um, we should know any second. Oh, here we are. So the post results are, are a triumph for, for, for the motion. 69% of the audience here are for treating China as an adversary. 23% are for treating China as a partner, and only 8% now are undecided. So thank you all very much for voting and for contributing and for sending in your questions wherever you were. It's hugely appreciated. Thank you all. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.